remember and understand the first principle we learn here in Revelation chapter 3, that I have you in the palm of my hand, and you belong to me, and I will be faithful to you all the days of your life, and I will never abandon you and will not let you go. You can absolutely count on me. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Over the last nine or ten Sunday mornings, we have been spending our time in the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And this morning, we're turning to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, would you turn, please, to Revelation chapter 3, and we're reading verses 7 through to 13, and you'll find it on page 1916-1916 in your church pew Bibles, Revelation chapter 3 beginning at verse 7. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut, and I know that you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. I want you to begin this morning with a pop quiz and here it comes. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, what is the best-selling song of all time? I'm still hearing it, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. The answer I'm looking for is Bing Crosby's White Christmas. 1942, 50 million copies sold worldwide. In the next top 10, you will also find Bill Haley, Rock Around the Clock, 1954, 25 million records. 1939, 19 sold, and I don't expect anyone here to even remember this group of 1939, the ink spots, if I didn't care. And those of you who do remember will not admit to it, uh, and that's okay. 
And then in 1977, we were all surprised to discover that Bacara could sing, Yes, Sir, I Can Boogie, which I can't, but apparently it was a big hit in 1977. And then Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On and On and On and On and On and On. In 1997, 15 million sold. And then the surprise in the top 10 from 1947, 12 million singles sold, Jean Autry, and it is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Who would have thought? And some of you, of course, have no idea what a single actually is and have never played one, but millions have been sold. <clears throat> now, in the post-digital age, the Black Eyed Peas... 2009, 15 million, I got a feeling. How many recognize that? All four of you, so that's there. <sighs> Followed by Lady Gaga, Poker Face with 14 million. And then finally, Bruno Mars, Just the Way You Are, 2009, 13.2 million. So when your adult children and grandchildren come round to your home on Friday to celebrate the 4th of July and Independence Day, and there is a natural lull in the conversation, you can say, what about that Lady Gaga with 14 million sales, huh? And see where that conversation goes. Now, thank you for your patience this morning, and all of that is leading up to this. This Friday, we will celebrate our 238th birthday as a nation. And we will meet probably with family and friends and parents and grandparents, and we will have barbecue and fixings, and no one has yet told me what the fixings are, but apparently we're having them. And in fact, we're having them at lunch today across in the gym, so please uh, come and join us for barbecue there. And the other thing that will happen on Friday is this. You will be creating memories to last a lifetime. In 20 or 25 or 30 years' time, those who are wee ones now will have a conversation saying, do you remember when we used to go to my grandmother's and we had barbecue and fireworks? Do you remember how much fun that was? When we hear music from our teenage years and early adulthood, especially between the years of 16 and 21 or 22, instantly the music takes us back. The memories flood over us. We remember the lyrics without ever having sat down and memorizing them. We just know them. They are part of who we are. On Friday, we will celebrate who we are, who we are as a nation. What are our core beliefs? What is it that we hold close and value the most? And we will remind ourselves that we are a republic, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's who we are. This past week, as I was thinking of what would be a good study this morning, I came to Revelation chapter 3. The title, and you heard me read it moments ago, and it is, To the Church in Philadelphia. And this morning, I would like to change that title and say that in Revelation chapter 3, 
there are so many spectacular Christian principles that it reminds us wonderfully of who we are, what our core values are, and what lies at the very center of our being. And I'd want to change the title to The Church in Greenville. So come with me, please, and look at this passage of Scripture prayerfully, saying, Father, in this week when we go towards celebrating our independence and the nation we are, speak to us from Your Word this morning. And that's my hope and prayer for each one of us. As we come to Revelation, flick back to chapter 2, and that will help put this in context, because at the beginning of chapter 2, we have the first seven verses. And the title is to the church in Ephesus. And then in verse 8, you find a second letter to the church in Smyrna. And then verse 12, to the church in Pergamum. And turn the page to verse 18, to the church in Thyatira. And then into chapter 3, you have the church in Sardis. Then you have the passage we read to the church in Philadelphia. And then seventhly, you have to the church in Laodicea. Seven letters begin the book of Revelation. Seven churches that God was speaking directly to. As we come to the letter of the church in Philadelphia, it kind of surprises us because when we think of Philadelphia, we think, of course, of the capital of the state of Pennsylvania, 1.5 million people, founded 1682 by William Penn, who took the name from this passage in the book of Revelation. And he took this name quite deliberately because there is an ancient city, as you know, called Philadelphia still exists. The ruin of it is there. There's a modern town built up on the same ground. It was founded in 159 BC when Atticus, the Attalus, excuse me, the second was king from 159 to 138 BC. And Attalus was known as having a deep and abiding love for his family, and particularly his brother. He loved his brother deeply, had great affection for him, and the word Philadelphia is known and translated as brotherly love. And so William Penn thinking, what could I use to encapsulate who we hope to be as a city? Chose that word Philadelphia for brotherly love. The ancient, ancient city of Philadelphia was a trading city. You would come inland from the sea it was known, it's about 28 miles south of modern Sardis in uh, western Turkey, still is a center for grape growing in that region and was way back then. Export-import was very important. It was a reasonably well-to-do city. Today, there's about 36,000 people living there. But it had one difficulty, and it lay on what we call a fault. And by this, I mean this. It's like San Francisco. It's positioned on a fault line. And in the year AD 17, a massive earthquake caused major problems for the folks of Philadelphia. And with all of that in mind, John is writing the book of Revelation somewhere between the years 81 AD to 96 AD. Persecution was breaking out across the empire under the Roman emperor Domitian. 
There was pressure from the state and pressure from society for Christians to give up what they firmly believed. And if only they would go along, they would be treated well. And that's the background to all that is going on here. The church in Philadelphia was small in number. They were not made up of the movers and shakers, the powerful, the wealthy, the influential of their day. They were a small group, fearful, didn't think that they amounted to much, felt that they were ineffective in their witness for Christ and were uncertain about what the future held. And in fact, they were really concerned. They knew that the original 12 had almost 11 had passed on, all of them from martyrdom, and John the apostle who was left was exiled on the island of Patmos when John writes the book of Revelation. And that gives us the context. And John writes to the church in Philadelphia, the words coming direct from Christ Himself. And he writes, these are the words of Him who is holy and true. These are the words of Him who are holy and true. In the earlier chapters, chapters 1 and 2, the exalted Christ is described there in spectacular, wonderful adoration. He's described as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Glorious, majestic, sovereign of all time and space, infinite, majestic, unchanging in power, wisdom, and character. That's who is writing. And can you imagine how it would feel for the church in Philadelphia when a scroll arrived from the Apostle John, and they gathered for worship that Sunday morning, and the pastor or the elder unrolled the scroll and began to read to the church in Philadelphia? Can you imagine the atmosphere you could almost sense the hair rise in the back of the necks of the folks in Philadelphia that the Apostle John, who had completed his gospel, who had written 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, was now writing Revelation, and he's including us. He's writing to us. He knows about us. He knows what we're facing. He understands what we're going through. That would have been quite an occasion. Sometimes on a Monday morning, I will receive an email. Someone will stop me around the church, or later that week will stop me in the street, and they'll say, Richard, I've just got to tell you. And this is not unique to me. It happens to Stan. It happens to Pamela. It happens to pastors regularly. When an individual will say this, your sermon on Sunday, I've never heard anything like that. It was as if just you and me were there on our own. I wasn't conscious of anyone else. It was as if God was speaking directly to me. And most of us at some point in our life have experienced exactly that. We're reading the Scriptures. A pastor is teaching and preaching, and suddenly it comes alive. We discover things in it we didn't know were there. And it's as if God is speaking directly to us. Sometimes He's challenging us. Sometimes He's 
comforting and renewing and refreshing us. And that's what God does best. And this morning, as he's speaking and writing to the church in Philadelphia, let me remind you that all those centuries ago, those principles still apply today, and they apply like this. Look at verse 7 again. These are the words of Him who is the Alpha and the Omega, the Majestic, the Infinite, the Eternal, He who is holy and truthful and faithful, He who can be trusted. That's what John is saying, the holy and the true. And this morning, He speaks to us. That's what's going on here. And when you are tempted to think that life is about to overwhelm you and you have nowhere else to go, and it seems as though God is not answering your prayers, and He seems to be a great distance away, remember and understand the first principle we learn here in Revelation chapter 3 that I have you in the palm of my hand, and you belong to me, and I will be faithful to you all the days of your life, and I will never abandon you and will not let you go. You can absolutely count on me. That's the first thing he's saying to the folks in Philadelphia, and it's the first thing he's saying to us as we move towards Independence Day and remember who we are. We are loved by a faithful God who will never give up on us and never abandon us. And Revelation is crystal clear. And then John takes it a step further. These are the words of Him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When He opens what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. If you've ever been to London, England, and visited the Tower of London where the crown jewels are kept, you may well know that at 5.39 each evening, the chief warder holds up a set of keys, and on either side is a grenadier guard and they leave the place where the keys are kept. And with great ceremony, they march to the main gate at the Tower of London. And they're very serious about the whole thing. They stop, and they stop because an infantryman from the Grenadier Guards has stepped out with an armed weapon and a bayonet attached, and he says, who goes there? And the warder says, the keys. Whose keys? Queen Elizabeth's keys, pass the Queen's keys, and he stands for attention. The keys go by, they close both doors, and with great ceremony, they close, turn the key, lock the doors, and then they return to where they keep the keys. And the next morning, when the doors are open, no one can close those doors till that night. And the Grenadier Guards, along with the Beefeater, goes through the same ceremony again. And no one can close the doors all day long. And millions come from all over the world to see the crown jewels. If you have that picture in your mind, 
you're beginning, just beginning, to get a sense of what John is saying here. When God sovereignly opens a door, no one can close that door. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And I know that you have little strength, and you have kept my word, but you have kept my, my word and have not denied my name. About two weeks ago, I was driving and trying to find a radio station I could listen to, and I tuned in to a talk show. And within a couple of minutes, I realized that the host was encouraging people to phone in and talk about various political issues. And they talked about cultural issues and the future of the United States and where it was going. And I heard two words that I've heard multiple times before, but I wasn't quite certain exactly their definition. And the definition became clear as various people called in and the host engaged them. And those two words were American exceptionalism. And the more I listened to the radio, the more I engaged with it, the more it became clear. And I want to tell you this morning, I am a huge fan of American exceptionalism. And we should be exceptional. We ought to be exceptional in faith, exceptional in grace, exceptional in character and integrity and faithfulness. We should be exceptional in the way we care for those who have very little for those who are afraid and concerned and lonely, for the widow and the offering and the orphan, rather. Those are the people we should be exceptional towards. We should be exceptional in our neighborhood, in the way we raise our children and our grandchildren, in the way we interact in our office environment. We should be exceptional people. And in writing to the church in Philadelphia, the Lord Himself is saying to them, I know your deeds. You are exceptional people. He is encouraging them to step out and follow Him and be faithful to Him through an open door of opportunity that no man can shut. And He is saying, continue to be exactly who you are. Be who you are. Stand up for the core values that you hold dear. That's what he's saying to the church in Philadelphia and to the church in Greenville this morning. Be the people God has called you to be. And then the passage goes on, and I simply don't have time this morning to give what's known as an exegesis or an explanation of the passage, but there is one principle I want to draw out, and it's verse 9. Where John is writing, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, forgive me, please. I simply don't have time to get into all of the symbolism going on here, the persecution of the Roman authorities, and all that's wrapped up. But there is one principle I want to take out of it. I have loved you. I have loved you. And when you're tempted to think that you are ineffective in your Christian life, when you're tempted to think you are weak, when you're tempted to think that you will never have an influence on anyone else 
and taking a stand for the things of Christ, remember this, that He has loved you. That's what makes us Christian people. Let me close with a final thought this morning, and I'm taking the principle from verse 11, where he writes, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. And it's those five words, hold on to what you have, I want to close with. My first Sunday in the pulpit here was June the 16th, 2007. Now, I am not naive enough to think for a second, you remember what I say from week to week, never mind what I said in June 2007. But I closed with an illustration then that I want to use again this morning. And it's still appropriate because it still happens. People will regularly ask me, what are you most surprised about by moving to America and moving to the South? particularly family in Scotland, sometimes folks here who know as well. And I always give the same two responses. I am constantly surprised at the exceptional nature of the people at First Presbyterian Church. You are truly an extraordinary congregation. You absolutely are. And the second thing that surprises me is this, and this goes much deeper. Your appetite and desire for spiritual things. It is quite remarkable. Thank you. And the other thing I'm asked by family in Scotland is this. It happens each time they telephone. Inevitably, somewhere in the conversation, they will say, what time is it in Greenville? And of course, I say, remember, we are six hours behind it. Most of the year, other times we're five hours behind, depending on British summer time and daylight saving time and all of that. This morning, I want to close by reminding you exactly what time it is in Greenville. It is time for we, the people, to remind ourselves that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And whatever the future holds, challenge or comfort, disappointment or encouragement, our confidence lies in Him, in Him who is faithful and loving, because He is exceptional. And our response this morning is simply this, in God we trust. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. It is so encouraging to us this morning, so reassuring, and we leave here encouraged, renewed, and refreshed that You, in all Your wonder and majesty and glory, would set Your love upon us Father, help us always to remember that no one can close the door which you have opened. Help us, please, to live to be exceptional people, faithful to all that you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
To purchase a DVD of today's message, please send a check or money order for $10 to First Presbyterian Church and include today's program number. For more information, call 864-672-1846 or visit our website at firstpresgreenville.org. Are you interested in membership at First Presbyterian, or do you just want to learn more about our church and denomination? Join us for our next First Look class on Sunday mornings. Register with Chuck Emery at 672-1753 or see Emery at firstpressgreenville.org.